Brittany Ross, and I play the fiddle. I'm Catherine Flincham, and I play the pipe. And together, we are Fiddle and Pipe. Two classical musicians who are reading and discussing topics beyond the staff. So grab a book, take a seat, and tune in. I'm so happy that I have AC. Thank God I don't know how people lived before 1960. Yo, like, I know that you worked at Kroger, and I know... I think you mean K. Roger. K. Roger? Yeah. Look, K. Roger. I know you worked at K. Roger. Look, Kroger. (laughs) For, like, a good bit. And I don't think you guys really... Did you guys, like, ever deal with, like, power outages or, like, AC power outages there? I'm sure you guys didn't. They had a generator. Of course they did. Of course they did. Because of all the refrigerated stuff. Makes sense. They need that, yeah. At Pizza Hut, like, I remember this happened at both Pizza Hut and Marco's. Whenever there was, like, a heat wave, and granted, like, those heat waves would last, like, what, like, five days? Yeah. Not as long as they're happening there, it looks like. But I just remember there was, like, this one heat wave. I had to wear all black, black jeans, and a black shirt where I wore a tank top underneath. My car had no AC either. And then you're in a hot steaming room with a oven that's like at 400 plus degrees. It's just fun. I know it was great time. I remember I, when I used to be a bagger at Kroger, I used to have to go out and do like carts, like bring the carts in from the parking lot and stuff. Oh yeah. They would let the baggers in the summer wear shorts. And I was like, thank God, because I would have died of heat stroke out there otherwise. I didn't wear shorts at Pizza Hut. I don't know if I was allowed to. I don't know. They changed the dress code after I left, but or the uniform. But at Marco's, I was able to wear shorts. So when our AC went out that time, it felt nice. <laughs> I mean, at least there was, in some way, I had a breeze down there. I could feel, like, the hot, humid air hitting my legs and just felt nice and sticky, so. Oh! Mm. This is not a good saying to say when you're reading Fifty Shades of Grey, currently. <laughs> <laughs> With hot dog fingers. Oh, my God. If you guys <laughs> want to know what we're talking about, you should um follow along on our Patreon patreon.com slash fiddle and pipe where you will get extras like bloopers outtakes that we don't put on our normal episodes and our fiddle and pipe happy hour podcast and soon to be new tier our binge reader tier where we're reading special books for you guys patreon.com slash fiddle and pipe and we will give more details when that time comes. The link should be in the show notes. Go look at the show notes, people. I write them out. I spend a lot of time writing out our show notes every week. Like, you can do, you could be doing that right now while you're listening to us banter about that down your mm-hmm. ears. <laughs> so, welcome to Fiddle and Pipe Happy Hour. <laughs> right? Banter. Uh, no, but welcome to our actual podcast, Fiddle and Pipe. I am Brittany Ross over there through the camera as a... My beautiful friend. Aw. Catherine Flincham. You're so sweet. <laughs> I love you so much. You're so kind. I love you too. I'm glad that you have central air conditioning happening in your home. I know. <laughs> I'm glad you're not sweating like you were the last time I saw you. 
For those of you who don't know, uh, the Southeast is currently going through what is called a heat dome, which is basically like, you know how if you're cooking on your nice cast iron and you're like, I really need this chicken to cook on the inside without burning it and you put a cover on it and the air just keeps circulating in there and it gets that chicken nice and tender. Uh, That's basically like there's a big cover all over all the Southeast region of Georgia and it's awful. We have heat indexes in like the 105s, like 110s. Um, and our air conditioning crapped out for two days. Like, literally had no AC. Wanted to cry. Mm-hmm. Not a good time. But I'm here, and I'm alive. Thank God. Yeah. Hydrated because you soaked up all that humidity from outside. But anyway, we're not talking about AC today. We're talking about other things. How do we transition to this? I've been trying to figure out a transition, and I can't think of one. So we're just going to dive right into this we're talking today about chapter seven and eight of the episode of butterfly hunting by ivana lynch mm-hmm. trigger warning i think we've done a really good job of putting this in all of our episodes except last one i kind of dropped the ball if you're triggered by anything about eating disorders what else is on this episode uh self-harm anorexia so if those aren't stuff that jive well with you our feelings won't be hurt if you need to skip this for your mental health and otherwise um just yeah, this. Yeah, just go right into it. So, um, I I thought this book wasn't going to get darker, and it got got a little darker. There's a lot of meat from this chapter to the end. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's a lot. I remember earlier this week you told me that you literally couldn't put the book down, and I feel like I've been having a really hard time doing that while we've been recording this episode. Normally, what I've been doing with this book is I will read a chapter and stop and take notes on it. But when I got to chapter eight, I literally, <laughs> I didn't even stop to take notes. I just flew through the rest of it. Oh, dang. No, I stopped. <laughs> it is so good. <laughs> it is so good. There were moments, well, no, I think this is what we're going to talk about in the next episode. But yeah, there were a lot of things like with these two chapters and the last three chapters of this book where I just like couldn't take it down and it's really hard like I have to take notes because if I read a whole like for instance I think what one of the chapters was like 60 pages yeah though they're dense yeah I was telling myself I'm not gonna retain all this information I need like you know how she has like certain like little sections Mm -hmm. and then she has that little icon that kind of separates it she has like little page breaks yeah I take notes in between those (laughs) That way it's fresh. That's smart. (laughs) And I can still get through it in a way, but yeah. Yeah, I just have a bad habit of reading directly from my notes, and I feel like our best episodes are when we have more, like, conversations about it, especially in something like a memoir, where it's not like, you know, Christian Grey kissed Anastasia Steele in the elevator. With his hot dog fingers. (laughs) With his hot dog fingers. Like, that's more like telling a story. This is telling a story, but it's it's real life. It's real life. So I feel like there's more, like big picture discussions instead of like something silly yeah this was not silly this is very actually serious they or she opens up the chapter with talking about the escape from the she always calls it the farm but it's peaceful pastures right the rehab center yeah, I guess it kind of goes back and forth where it's like peaceful pastures, the farm. The farm is more of a word that a lot of the patients use because 
it seems like that's all I had to get from it. But she goes back and forth between those two. I noticed that, um, no, it just seems like she calls it the farm because maybe, like, this is the point of her memoir where that's where she, like, always identified this place as while she was there and probably what other patients were thinking about when they were there. I noticed that, and again, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but when she mentions peaceful pastures, when she leaves the facility, she calls it peaceful pastures. She doesn't call, she doesn't really call it the farm anymore. Hmm. That's what I just noticed, but yeah. I wonder why that is. Maybe that is getting ahead of yourself a little bit. Because that's like a next episode. I am getting ahead of myself. That's the next episode. Conversation topic. (laughs) But anyway, she's basically kind of succumbed to what, like, you know, the program, like, she's eating. Because that's really the only way out. Yeah, she's given up at this point. And it's rough because you kind of want to be like, don't give up. Like, don't let them crush your will. But at the same time, it's like... You have anorexia. Girlfriend, you gotta eat. You know, you gotta get out of this horrible, horrible place. So it's like you are cheering for two sides of her simultaneously. Did you find that too? I found that too because when we were ending the last episode with chapter six, you know, she's watching the new girl, like, you know, having a fit while eating. And she's just kind of like, just got to get used to it. And it's kind of sad because she's also saying, like, I want to fight it. You're, like, trying to get her to fight it because you want her to, you know, you want to you want to be on Ivana's side. But then on the other end of it, it's like she's, you know, what she's doing is not exactly healthy for her. She needs to take care of herself. She needs to be healthy. I can see how, like, you're fighting with both sides in a way. Yeah, it's a real catch-22. And... I guess we'll talk about this more next episode. We really should have just probably looped all these in together. I mean, <laughs> we I, we both finished the book at this point in, in in this moment in time. So later, she talks about the. What am I trying to say? She talks about how the center didn't treat mental health and didn't treat it very well, even though they did no really good things, you know, by basically, like, forcing these anorexic people to eat. And, you know, they arguably saved lives. They definitely saved lives in doing so, but it's almost like at what cost? Is at what cost? Because it seems like more of the work, it seems like most of the work at the facility is for you to eat, hit a certain weight, then go home. There's not much work helping you what are the next steps that you can do after you leave the program kind of thing? What can you do after you leave the program to continue this healthier track? Yeah, it's just really that the only really good thing out of this place is getting you to eat to hit a certain healthy level physically. I don't think the mental health portion of it was very good. No, it was it was awful and that's why I think that's why Ivana chose to open up chapter seven with talking about how two of her peers, two of the other patients escaped. It just seems like there's a lot happening like in the program. Like, I don't know if it's considered abuse in a way, like where we uh, hear about like the two being like basically like stuck through your like 
throw. Oh, the the force feeding <sighs> with the feeding tube. Yeah. Did you like the description of the feeding tube, by the way, since you learned what that was last episode? Oh my god, it was so gross. That made me gag. Yeah, and so like, I know two, of course two people would run away. Like, I wouldn't want that to happen to me either. Like, that sounds awful. I mean, I don't blame the two girls for wanting to run away. It just doesn't seem like it's a healthy environment (laughs) whatsoever. Do you want me to read the feeding tube thing? Oh god, what was it? Like, cream, mayonnaise. (laughs) It was so gross. I was just, like, thinking, like, everything white. (laughs) Everything that's white and creamy. That sounds so gross. Very perverted. I feel like that should be in Fifty Shades. Yeah, it should be. Oh, God. I found it. Hannah was the first patient I saw being tubed. That's another new girl that she's talking about. Mm -hmm. A casually and frequently welded threat, the nasogastric tube was actually quite a rarity at the farm so terrorized was everyone by the thought of higher calories prolonged tsv and a thin rubber tube being stuffed up your nose and then threaded all the way down to your stomach oh yeah it was only after a patient bluntly refused through tightly pressed lips to take a sip of the milkshake that the brown kitchen was cleared extra nurses were summoned and a thin rubber tube was passed through the nostril and taped to the face at which point a mysterious creamy liquid concoction was squirted up into the tube and down into the stomach of a loudly protesting patient Word on the ward was that the liquid was comprised of a stomach-churning blend of all the most dreaded fear foods imaginable. Mayonnaise, cream, butter, and Mars bars. I'm grateful to report... I just want to be sick. ...that I never had to find out the verity of these claims, but the horror of the legend alone was enough to keep most of us firmly on the straight and narrow terrain of dutifully ingesting solid foods. I don't know if this is insensitive, me saying it, but I just feel sick, like, thinking about that combo. No, that, that made me feel sick. Like, I was... You probably might have heard me laughing in my voice, which I was not laughing because this was funny. I was laughing because Catherine was over there looking like she was going to throw up. And I'm like, I need to laugh at you or else I'm also going to throw up. Yeah, I was reading along too because I happened to be on that same page. I was like, oh, I found it. Yeah, it was really gross. So I'm not surprised because I think it seems like, I could be wrong, but it seems like this center mostly focuses on children with eating disorders. Yeah. But these kids, they don't want to be there. They're checked in involuntarily. And while I understand that they kind of on some level need to be there or at least need to be somewhere that treats, has more of a focus on eating disorders than wherever they came from. Because obviously wherever they came from wasn't working. I don't think this place is treating it well. I don't think Mm -mm. force feeding... Someone who has an eating disorder food, yeah, you'll make them gain weight, but you're not going to make them retain the weight. You're not going to get past, like, the mental trauma that they're going through. Uh, So it's no wonder two of these kids escape. And also in this chapter, Ivana talks about that there's a self-harming pandemic that is spreading all around as well. So long story short, two girls come back because they get found in the middle of London asleep in the middle of, like, I guess, like, Trafalgar, is is that how you call it? Trafalgar? Trafalgar Square? I don't know. I'm not British. It was some square. They were sleeping by a lion statue, I believe. Y'all probably know what I'm trying to say. (laughs) I don't. So it's that square right there in London. And basically, it kind of was a symbol, like, their escape kind of symbolized rebellionism, I guess. Like, just everyone kind of being rebellious. And I'm saying that with quotes because that's kind of how Ivana like, explained it, 
people were taking like there was a girl who used paper clips as earrings and she used that as a device like to self use like do self-harm on herself to cut her yeah cut the backs of her hands uh, because it was a form of revolution in a sense mm-hmm. because she didn't do it in a place that would have been easy to hide so mm-hmm. instead of being like a self-coping mechanism or like a cry for help like a lot of self-harm is this was a giant fuck you i'm gonna put it directly on the back of my hand so you see exactly what i did the kid who started this was telling the other kids what she was doing and then other kids started doing it as well Mm-hmm. So it's just kind of like a universal fuck you to the man. Like all the nurses in the facility are like freaking out because like they can't f- figure out like where this is coming from because they search them yeah. for sharp objects. Exactly. And Ivana is kind of tempted in doing this herself. She talks about that. Yeah, she kind of just talks about it's on page 270. She says, I held on to the paperclip, keeping it neatly tucked into the small flat pocket of my pair of jeans that I was rapidly growing too big for, knowing it was silly, melodramatic, and counterproductive gesture, but still fantasizing about punishing my parents with a row of deep cuts. So it's kind of like, it sounds like she's like hit this place where she's at a healthier place. Like the paperclip is still there because she's like still angry that she's put in this place. She's still angry that she has to like, you know, succumb to what the nurses at the facility are doing, making her eat and, you know, not letting her do what she wants to do. So she just has, like, this paper clip with her. Mm -hmm. And she talks about how she was, like, in the shower, like, almost, like, tempting to use it. And then she was, like, she said, I wanted to hurt. I wanted to bleed. I knew my body was disgusting, shameful, and totally unlovable. But somewhere in the very distant future, I dreamed that maybe I could be something more than just then. I saw myself working and dancing and acting and performing. And I saw myself doing so with pale, unblemished wrist. It seemed like she is, in a way, still, like, she is, in some form, getting better. Like, she now has aspirations in some kind of sense. You know what I mean? She has goals and she has dreams. Because she didn't have them in the previous two chapters. No, I mean, it's, it's really when people have something to look forward to that that's when they tend to do better for themselves. Mm-hmm. And if you can't see the silver lining, that's when people, you know, don't survive or that's when they really fall victim to self-harm, suicide, eating disorders, traumas, anything. And then kind of going towards those goals, she talks about how recovery is not just the physical disorder, but there's a lot more recovery past the disorder i literally just wanted to read this whole section because it was so beautifully written it really was i have to keep coughing i'm sorry guys phlegm yay rona (sighs) jeez sometimes i think about the word recovery and how apt it is for recovering from an eating disorder but not for the reasons people think which are merely the superficial aspects of recovery such as gaining weight and establishing more consistent normal weight more consistent normal eating habits. It's apt because in eating disorder recovery, you're literally trying to recover a whole person. The one who was there before the eating disorder. The one you didn't like and tried to bury. The one who fades into the background and who people stop seeing the more the anorexia intensifies. You're trying to recover this person to the surface. This person who is slipping down and down into even darker depths, further and further away from the sun. 
The deeper she slips, the harder the battle will be to recover her. But to recover that person, you will, you have to have a very good reason to pull her back to the surface because the battle is brutal and you get so tired of fighting. But sometimes it is easier to just give up and let her sink. This, to me, is the most difficult aspect of recovery. People don't develop anorexia without a deep-seated sense that they are inherently worthless. They find solace from their worthlessness in anorexia because it is grueling and relentless, a punishing way of life that aligns with their opinions of themselves, and then they find that thinness. The sweet bonus of their self-flagellation is prized and praised by society in an intoxicating manner. This thing they are doing to distract themselves from their own worthlessness just so happens to earn them attention, affirmation, and secure identity they've always craved and can never give themselves. So why would you ever give that up? Why the fuck would you ever choose recovery? And as with a lot of the stuff she's written before, I think you can apply that to not just eating disorders, but recovering from other forms of trauma Mm -hmm. and other disorders. Mm Mm-hmm. I agree. I feel like the the hardest part of recovering from anything mental health wise is to is the point where you stop identifying with it and the point where you're like I'm I'm bigger than this. And that's not really easy either. Just really from a personal experience, it's really not easy to immediately think that. I feel like it takes time to really like understand that and move forward with that idea. I think everybody does it differently, has like a different experience going through it. So there's like not one way. And I think that's the hard thing for me, at least, of realizing that it's like there's not one way to like think that way. Everybody or like to approach thinking that way. I think everybody encounters that point differently in their experience and journey with something that they're struggling with it's really the point that you decide that there's a reason to exist outside of whatever you're facing Mm -hmm. because like when you're again in a dark place that's all you think about and it could be really easy to be stuck there for a while and it's so easy to just stay there yeah it's so easy self-improvement is difficult Mm -hmm. And it takes time and it takes effort. And I think we've said this in our previous episodes, but like working mental health work takes so much time and so much effort. And And it takes work, like actual work. And it can feel like, you know, you make all this effort to move forward and then you slip back again. It's a process and it's, it's rough. I love her writing style. I think her writing is beautiful and wonderful and if we ever have a chance to do anything with her the first thing I'm going to say is your writing is amazing I agree but I love how she talks about anorexia in a way that makes it so personal because you and I have never had an eating disorder but I think you and I are seeing this through like the lens of other traumas yeah because like again yeah we've never experienced anorexia Anorexia. Wow. Words. Anorexia. Words are hard. They're very hard today. We haven't experienced this personally, but it's very eye-opening to kind of see what someone does go through when they have, like, been in that place before. Because I genuinely don't understand it. I don't mm-hmm. know what how someone 
gets to that point in going through anorexia. I really don't understand it. I never really understood it. And seeing it... It seems relatable. Like, I don't know exactly, like, these exact experiences, and I can't, you know, like, say, like, oh, yeah, I totally understand, because I don't understand. But I, I can relate in another way how she feels. Totally. I can see myself in her writing, and I can see people I know and people I love in her writing. Exactly. People who've never had an eating disorder, and I just think it's amazing to take something that is so personal and put it into terms that anyone can relate to. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what kind of like got me hooked on this book, was really just feeling that. I don't know, like, I just, there are, like, some moments where I just kind of was, like, like, this is wonderful. Like, I, or beautiful in a way. It just really touched me. So that's what I'm trying to, like, point out. It just really kind of, like, it made me not feel so alone in some instances that I've been experiencing recently and even, like, when I was a lot younger. No, I'm the same way. I'm going to keep reading from this section because there's another Mm -hmm. part that I wanted to point out also because I can't get enough of this section. Yeah. But where do you begin to salvage self-worth and recover yourself when you simply don't have any reasons to like yourself beyond your disorder? That's a fucking mood. I have anxiety and it's not crippling, but I definitely do have to find ways to like myself beyond the way I think and teach myself to think differently. So that I can relate to that a lot. She says, how do you choose yourself when everyone else around you has forgotten who that is and when treatment centers like Peaceful Pastures Pastures actually reinforce identification with one's eating disorder by fixating entirely on that part? And why would you bother when the eating disorder further embeds your sense of worthlessness as your peers go on to succeed in life, pass exams, go to college, score their dream jobs, and all you are is thin and there's no hope you'll ever catch up with them now? I feel like that's a mood now in general because... That's a mood now in general, like, for real. We're almost 30, and I feel like the pandemic has... We I think we've talked about this, I don't know on what book, but I feel like the pandemic has really, like, crushed a lot of our ideas of where we would be. Like, I thought by the time I was 30, I would not be in debt. I would have kids. I would be making so much money being a musician. And I am paying off Figaro's medical bills. (laughs) I mean, technically, he is your kid. He is my kid. But I just, (laughs) I thought my life would be different. Yeah, I understand. I think... A lot of people our age are kind of coming to that conclusion where they're like, I thought my life would be different by this point. And it's interesting, especially with the advance of social media, that you see all your peers, or not all of your peers, but some of your peers around you are moving in different directions in their lives that maybe you thought you'd be moving in. I I know I definitely felt this place where I've seen people, like, do all these great things. I felt this way a lot more... Actually, like, last year when things started opening up again and people were doing things. And, I mean, I Same. I was doing things, too, but I guess, like, I was hoping I would be doing some, like, more things. Or I guess, like, my expectations on some things that I would have been doing, like, at this point in my life, I would be doing them. 
like yeah. playing more in a way and just seeing people like especially on social media put out like exciting news or exciting accomplishments it's I'm it's great to see that and then I just kind of sit there and it's like I feel like I'm just behind everybody I should be at this place and not here in my flute loft <laughs> like <laughs> practicing my scales and waiting for another flute lesson to come by like even though it's like great and all it's just I pictured myself somewhere completely different even during the pandemic it was really hard to kind of see everybody like share their accomplishments and everything and you're kind of sitting in the background like why don't I feel this way and mm-hmm. it kind of put me in this depressed state for a really long time even more of a depressed state I would say I agree with everything I think that a lot of people around our age have really made 30 this big thing in our heads and we're supposed to have all these things accomplished by it and for different people we're supposed to accomplish different things by it I was actually talking to my therapist about this a few weeks ago and she said that another part of the reason not only were we set behind by like the housing market crash when we were in high school and the you know pandemic and the really bad economy for like the last 10 years but we see like the milestones that our parents were able to hit and we are consistently comparing ourselves to that when everything was price lower. Yeah. It sucks. Education has gone up. Wages haven't gone up to match inflation. And mm-hmm. it's, it's funny how much you can trace back to money. I hate it. <laughs> I also hate it. I guess getting off of our deep soapbox, <laughs> she there is a little light at the farm when she discusses Marcus Freed. Very little. Yeah, and I liked this because it made me happy because this was something, it seems like acting was a great outlet for her. Just like how music is an outlet for us in some kind of way. But yeah, she joins the... Drama classes, I guess, um, led by Marcus. For lack of a better word. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what else are we supposed to say? I, well, I guess that was one of her perks um, that she was able to, you know, gradually, like, go up to at the farm. But she j- just enjoyed being at the drama classes, and she would be called the teacher's pet. And they did, um, okay, so I guess they did, like, a little bit of a spoof or a parody of Midsummer's Night Dream and their experiences at the farm. And I was just like, even Midsummer's Night Dream, I'm having PTSD with the scherzo excerpt. Because <laughs> that's all I think about when I see stuff of Midsummer's Night Dream. Like, I just, I know it's a Shakespearean play, but... I just think of the Mendelssohn. Yeah, everybody who probably has taken... Any sort of classical music training knows how scary Mendelssohn is, so that's all I that that was all I was thinking. Like, I kept hearing da 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 in my head. Do you and I have the same part for that excerpt, by the way? The beginning opens up more or less with the woodwinds. Yeah, the woodwinds do da 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 da
You don't have all that? All that squirrely part? I don't really know. I most likely, I don't know. If you're a flute player out there, tell me. <laughs> I mean, the score is right down the street, like down a few feet away from me, but I don't feel like getting it out. Right down the street? <laughs> right down the street. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and across the street to find my music chest that has all of my music in there. My neighbor three doors down has my music. <laughs> be very awkward. Hey, you look kind of peppy. I am peppy because I just drank a cup of coffee from La Belle Rosette Espresso and Wine Bar. That's in Denver, right? Yep. We are located right across the street from the University of Denver. And do they have more than just espresso and wine? Yeah, we have breakfast burritos, paninis, pastries, teas. We have a lot. If someone was walking through Denver and let's say this person was me and let's say I wanted a panini, when is LaBelle open so I can go and get one? We are open from 7 to 5 Monday through Friday, 7 to 2 on Saturdays, 8 to 2 on Sundays. And if you use the code FPPODCAST, you'll get 15% off your order, whether you're in-store or online at LaBelleRosette.com. That's a really good deal. Totally a good deal, and it's even a better deal when you get to see moi at the store. Is that a good deal? Uh, not really, but I actually need to head to work right now, because I'm going to be late. Oh. So I'm going to go. Go to La Belle Rosette. Go. Bye. Right now. Drop <laughs> everything. Go. But, um, <clears throat> what was it? Sorry, there was, like, a quote that I liked. She mentioned something how... There was therapy on the farm, like what we talked about. There was, but I don't think it really did much for her. Right. But drama was more like therapy for her in this case. And it actually was better than her actual therapy was. So this was relatable in a way because I've definitely been in places where with my trauma and, and other things where music has kind of like helped me like not just classical music specifically but just music in general has always been some kind of outlet for me to release like stress or like invest in whenever when I remember I went through a traumatic scenario where all I did was drive and listen to just like soundtracks because I just love the power of soundtrack music for instance like stuff from Hans Zimmer and it just really like help me release like just energy driving on the highway crying and letting it go hearing powerful sounds of like let it go let it go (laughs) well that's not quite Hans Zimmer (laughs) but like you know when he has like the the trombone squawking I'm just kidding I mean you're not wrong but when I go running like for instance when and I'm sure you experience this too I don't listen to, I mean, I used to listen to classical music when I run, but when I'm listening to a certain, like, beat or a song with a, like, neat bass in the background, it really just puts me in this mood to let out all the stress, all the anger, all, like, whatever emotion I'm feeling. It just helps me, like, run faster, move more, feel the energy a lot better. Even when I play, I don't know, it was relatable and it was neat to see like from a different perspective, a different art form, how someone can get, use that as a tool to get better. And it seems like she's getting better without really noticing it. Yeah, for sure. 
Another way that I thought a different art form was relatable is she wrote this about acting and I thought about music. She wrote, it's funny how the body takes the helm and guides you through the motions when stage fright seizes you and you're convinced you're either going to pass out or shit yourself. That's the magic of practice, though, that no matter how terrified you feel when you first step out on that stage, moments later the body will kick in. Say the lines, walk to the marks without your realizing, and before you know it, you're immersed in the story and you don't have space to contemplate your morality anymore. It's so relatable. I love it. It's so true. I think about whenever I have solo recitals or even playing orchestra concerts or chamber music i feel really nervous oh then my body does the thing and as long as i just don't think too hard about it i'm like wow that's amazing look at what i'm doing Mm -hmm. yeah just and then you just embrace it and go with it embrace it i kind of tell myself you know how to do this Just giving yourself encouragement and just, you know, putting yourself on autopilot. I like to think of it, you know, because it's like you practice all this into like a point where you know it, you could be on autopilot, you know, Mm -hmm. Marcus, he did a lot to help the kids learn how to deal with negative emotions and release them in a healthy manner. And I think that was really something that this institution needed. He also encouraged Ivana to act when she was released. I think he gave her, what was it, like an envelope of something, like an- I guess like agencies, an agency to get her an actual agent, was it? Or no, headshots. I thought it was like an an envelope for like a guild or like a place that was looking for like extras. Yeah, and I think he also told her like get a good headshot or something like that when she gets out. Gave her some mentor- Sorry, some mentory advice. I mean, at that age, too, because she's 12 years old, that does really help kids at that age. Like, when you tell them something, like, hey, you should try this out. Like, I think this would be good for you. Like, that's the time of a kid's life where they're, like, experimenting with new things, trying to discover who they are as a person. I guess in this case, for Ivana, he saw that she had something, like, special, and he was like, why don't you just go out for it? Really reaching out to kids helps them immensely. And I thought it was really sad that he ended up quitting after a couple years. He was like right out of grad school, I think is what she said when he went to the, when he taught at the institution. But it seemed like he left for, because like things at the farm were just not great. He left for his own mental health. She said a few years later, he went to a bar to, to get a drink and he looked at the pint of Guinness and he was thinking about the calories in it and that's when he knew he needed to leave. Yeah, I mean, I guess you can only take so much, like, toxicity. Yeah, it's interesting how that takes effect on people who, in this case, like, he wasn't going through a disorder at all. Mm-hmm. Eating disorder, at least. If you're surrounded by it all the time. Um, but she talks about how, like, drama and Marcus were, like, I guess in a way, distraction. Because she said one thing that's really helpful, trying to come out from an eating disorder or any kind of darkness she mentioned in that matter, um, are distractions. So that was one of them. But also she met a boy just like any other 12-year-old girl. (laughs) I know. Except I definitely did not meet a boy when I was 12. (laughs) I was just admiring them from afar. I knew boys. I knew boys too. I just didn't talk to them. I think, how, what grade are you in when you're 12? I was in seventh. 
Seventh grade? Okay, so when I was in seventh grade, I got my first boyfriend. Oh, Brittany! Yeah, I was a hoe. (laughs) But listen to this. He passed me a note in math class saying that he wanted to kiss me, and it was too awkward for me, and I broke up with him. Oh my god, Brittany, (laughs) that's the cutest story I've ever heard. (laughs) I was like, don't ask, just do. And I broke up with him, because I got scared. Uh, LOL, never mind. (laughs) G2, like, you you should have done it with, like, the LOL, NVM, G2G, exclamation point, T-T-Y-L. <laughs> no actual words. <laughs> what is this? Uh, this is the language that we write on AIM. <laughs> Flashback Friday. Oh, it is actually Friday. Friday the 17th. So, yeah. yeah. So... Alfie is the boy that Ivana is fancying, and he is a 12-year-old who is struggling with anorexia. Or sorry, not a 12-year-old, a 16-year-old. And they bond by dancing to the cha-cha slide. That's what she mentioned! They, like, danced together. They did right the foot, cha-cha slide. Stumps. Boom. Left foot, two uh, stumps. Which, that's cha-cha. all I kept hearing in my head this entire section was the cha-cha slide. Dude, to the left. Yeah, I was, like, singing that in my head. You know? To the back now, y'all. White people really love songs that scream the directions of them. Or, like, spell words. Like, this shit is bananas. B-A-N-A-N-A-S. This shit is bananas. B. Or, um, respect is another one. Oh, my God. R-E-S-E-C-T. R-E-S-E-C-T. R-E-S, R-E-S, uh, how do you spell R-E-S-P-E-C-T. R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Did I spell yeah. it wrong? Oh my I god. So. <laughs> I didn't realize it. It's that freaking P syllable. R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Wow, It's because she says right. like P-E, and so you're like R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Yeah. It's like um, how the alphabet songs A-B-C-D-E-F-G-A-J-J-K-L-M-N-O-P. L-M-N-O-P is all one syllable. Dang. We've gone far in life. We know how to spell. <laughs> we know how to spell. We know how to say words. What? <laughs> anyway, you know who does know how to spell? Ivana Lynch knows how to spell because she wrote a book. So really good book too. Yes. Yep. Yeah, they bond over the cha cha slide. The whole thing about the cha 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 slide is that the people who run the farm don't catch on that it's you know a oh, dance craze, yeah. so they burn calories. So they're kind of caught up in the fun in it, but also they're like, oh, I can burn a bunch of calories while I'm doing this. Um, And then I think they also bond over, like, they spot for each other while the other is exercising. So they get involved Mm -hmm. in, like, some schemes together and they, you know, they get really bro-y. They laugh at jokes. They enjoy each other's time. It seemed like she was more, I guess, like, the word would be enable. Yeah. Because it seemed like she was enabling more him than he was her. Because she would mention how, like, she would watch out while he was sneaking in exercises for him and talking about how she's a Leo, she's a generous lover, she would do anything for him. And it's true, we are. Um, My husband's a Leo. (laughs) You're generous lovers. (laughs) But, yeah, it seemed like she was, I guess, in her progress, she was a little bit more ahead of his than he was. Well, yeah, because he just came to the thing, and she kind of, 
At that point, she had her set, her sights set on out. Yeah, exactly. And then she's getting ready to leave. And she's kind of, like, fighting this, like, feeling of, I've made connections with all these people. I've made these friends. I have a boyfriend. Ish. <laughs> and I'm going to be leaving them. And then, but I'm going to get out of this place, you know? There's a lot of comfort being surrounded by like-minded people. And then also... Yeah, I mean, she's been there for three months. Kind of don't really know or remember how to interact with the outside world, especially when not everyone else around you is struggling with an eating disorder. Yeah, it's kind of like she was at camp for like 12 weeks, 14 weeks. It's like over three months. It's like she was at camp. Not camp, but kind of think about it in that way. Like you're at camp for a really long time. You become friends with like all the people that you're surrounded with like 24-7 like, you're basically in your own kind of bubble. And you go back to reality and you're like, what is this? What do I do? Yeah. And not only that, but you think about, like, the people that you're leaving behind and, like, the connections that you leave behind. And it's like you're not up to date with everything. Mm-mm. You're kind of, like, left out because it's all you really know for a long time. So that's why she feels sad. She also talks about how she goes shopping with her mom and sisters because I guess like on her getting close to leaving, she's allowed to like go out with them. And like, I guess they do like a transition where your family stays in a hotel and you stay with them for like a weekend to just kind of a supervised outpatient program where they just know that you're not going to instantly relapse the second you get out. Can I write what I put in my notes? Yeah. Or read? (laughs) Did you say? Did I say right? Right? Yeah, I think you said right. It's Friday, y'all. We literally can't function today. It's okay. I wrote, she's instantly triggered by seeing a skinny Regina George while shopping. Oh, I know. She's shopping shopping for clothing with her mom, and there's this girl who is definitely described like a middle school Regina George, like a plastic. She's, like, super skinny and all into her phone and her friends, and she's laughing. And then Ivana looks at herself in the mirror, and she's like, wow, I'm fat AF, even though she's normal-looking. Yeah. She can't deal with it. I mean, the Regina George girl starts laughing, and Ivana thinks it's directed at her. But it's, yeah, probably not It might be. It might not be. It probably isn't. Yeah. And it really can hit you. And I mean, just coming from a place where I felt that way before, where it's like I've like seen people, like if I've been in a situation where I feel like someone's looking at me or I feel like tension's on me and people are like reacting in certain ways, I've definitely felt that place where it's just like this person is like laughing at me or talking about me, blah, blah, blah. Like it really does affect you. Like super self-conscious. Yeah, and it's really hard to get out of that place and, like, work out of that place. Yeah. And I'm saying that because I'm still not out of that place. I'm still working through my own, like... Getting out of your head. Yeah. And that's okay. It's okay. But, yeah. Progress isn't linear. We slip into chapter eight, which, the you know, this book is linear. We have one chapter after the next. Which, (laughs) nice transition right there. I really, you know, after not- I mean, you're not exactly wrong, though, so- After not having one for, like, our intro, I- Yeah. I'm really trying, okay? You're doing good. You're doing good. You're doing good. But yeah, she's back at home now. And this is basically her just kind of, you know, 
this is her transition out of the facility and just getting back into life. Kind of like her recover her journey on quote unquote recovery. Yeah, because basically that it like your recovery more so happens after you leave the facility versus when you're in the facility. So she's really struggling because she's kind of what you talked about. She's drifting away from her camp friends. She's doing the whole, oh yeah, mm-hmm. we'll talk on the phone. And she's talking to them on the phone. The phone calls get shorter and shorter and progressively more awkward. It's the thing is, it's like they're not surrounded by the same things all the time. They also don't have the common trauma because Ivana says that she's not sure that she wants to turn back to anorexia and all these girls that she's talking to and Alfie, they are struggling with anorexia. So it feels more like dealing with leaving an abusive relationship because you always think about it and you, part of you wants to go back to it even though you know that that's not where you should be. Yeah, we basically kind of see her drift away from her friends. Phone calls become shorter and less, I guess, like, it, it becomes less of, like, saying hi and bye to, like, all these people on the phone, and it just becomes very short. Like, less and less people come to the phones. Yeah. she She's, she's also trying to stay really busy, like, trying to keep her mind off her eating disorder. Stay distracted. Yeah, like, when she gets back, what was it? She gets back to school. It's, like, towards the end of the school year, but she's, like, just trying to keep her mind off things and just, like, constantly stay busy. Mm -hmm. What did she do during the summer? Like, read or something? Hobbies to distract myself. uh, Resuming therapy. She doesn't really go into what hobbies, but she just says, frantically looking for hobbies to distract myself. Well, she definitely started processing the trauma of going through peaceful pastures there and that's kind of what this section is talking about is Mm -hmm. that she started having nightmares arguably night terrors about the i keep wanting to say the camp you said camp and now i keep wanting to say camp uh about the farm Mm -hmm. (laughs) and she has meltdown she has an, an inability to control her emotions and she has this irrational fear of separating with anorexia because, again, even though she does want to move forward and she knows that this is the better way, this is the healthier way, that is a big part of you. Um, you can't beat it. You just kind of abandon it. Yeah. Um, I did tag this part. Ivana says, if you are a fighter, a determined, willful person is tempting to stay in its company and meet its constant goading and challenges. But in my opinion, anorexia is the ultimate fighter. The challenger, the energy that's always trembling with the need to dominate, to overcome, to beat out all the competition and be better than everyone else. I think that perhaps the only way to defeat anorexia is to defeat the feeling of worthlessness, but in order to do that, you would need to know the meaning of life and, well, I'm just not that cocky, I suppose. (laughs) But the only way I see it now, the only way to win anorexia's game is to follow it to the very end, to sacrifice everything else within this and to die from it. Then you will have won. You will have proven to it that you did absolutely everything not to be worthless. But the price is your life. You either answer its beckons and embark on a lifelong struggle or lay down your weapons. You step away and you leave it behind to fester in the dark. I don't know if I'll ever stop glancing back at it occasionally and finding its challenge a tantalizing one. I don't know if that word will ever just be a word. But I will continue to speak it out loud to try and reduce its power and allure. I love the way she writes. It's good. 
if you suffer from an eating disorder, and I'm not going to mansplain eating disorders because, again, I've never had one, but from what it seems like from Ivana's experience is that you... It kind of always stays a part of you. It just maybe becomes, like, a smaller and smaller and smaller part of you. And it's about turning, learning to turn away from that impulse instead of giving into it. Yeah. And that's why for a lot of people it is so hard to get rid of because it is a feeling of worthlessness. It is a feeling of not having any self-confidence. It is a coping mechanism. And once you wrap so much of like your person and your personality around that, it's hard to change who you are. I think a lot of people can relate to that with other things too, not just eating disorder. Yeah, like I, I've had to rewire my thinking with therapy and dealing with my anxiety and my own trauma and my fear of abandonment. I mean, like we said earlier, self-improvement isn't easy and changing your personality isn't easy and changing who you are, your way of thinking, your coping skills, they're not easy things. Another thing that's really hard post-institutionalized recovery and then in like actual recovery is that you get triggered by everything. I found this kind of overwhelming. She says... There's not much point in trying to avoid being triggered in the immediate aftermath of recovery because pretty much everything is triggering. Eating in front of people is triggering. Choosing what to eat. Watching other people eat. TV sitcoms where female characters casually joke about their eating disorders and claim not to have eaten bread in decades. Magazines, obviously. All the models, all athletes, all dancers, especially ballet dancers. Naturally skinny people, lanky children, malnourished children in third world countries on adverts appealing for charitable donations. Jesus on the cross with his enviable ribcage. Friends skipping dessert because they claim they're not hungry. Anyone leaving any scrap of food on their plate as you mentally calculate the calories they've omitted. Religious fasting. Animals in hibernation who don't eat for months on end and live off their fat reserves. Other people's hip bones. Other people's belly buttons. Cartoon characters with waspish, waspish, waist, wasp. People who say, I was so busy, I forgot to have lunch. Every other person who has an eating disorder. Stories of other anorexics who died from their thinness. Boys with abs. People who run for fun. People who choose salad for lunch. The Olympics. Greyhounds. All of it. It's also triggering and there's no way around it. So you better be ready to cry in public and just generally be a human volcano who might blow and spill all your messy, uncomfortable feelings on the floor at any moment. Is a lot. So, and, and I know that, like, they were weighing her. Like, her mom was trying to help her keep track of her weight, too. Because she had to, like, still track her eating and her weight, and I guess they were telling the facility. Yeah, they had to, like, report back weekly to make sure that she wasn't losing weight. Yeah, and that also has to be triggering. Wasn't there a whole thing that wasn't in this chapter where her... Yeah, her mom, like, basically it just gets to the point where it's, like, super stressful that her mom is like, okay, we're not doing this anymore. Her mom can see that it's so distressing for... Ivana because I think after one of the times she weighs her she gains like a kilogram or something which for Americans that's 2.2 pounds we know how much you love the metric system Brittany (sighs) hate the metric system and she basically bursts in her room and starts like throws herself on the bed and starts crying and her mom's like you know what we're just we're gonna stop doing this like this obviously isn't good for you and then Ivana's like well aren't they gonna you know ride your ass about it and her mom's just like you let me handle that which I was like that's a great mom move there yeah like props for mom yeah she knows what she's doing she's taking Mm -hmm. care of her 
I felt like this chapter was more just like going through her recovery. I know at the very end of the chapter, she talks, uh, she, I guess with, because she's not weighing or like doing, like weighing herself every week as much anymore, I guess like she still tries to find that motivation. And I'm saying that like in quotes, motivation. Um, so she tries to find a, a picture of herself when she was like before she went to the treatment. I guess this was when she was like at her worst. Yeah, and she finds it. She took the picture and put it on her windowsill as a comparison to see how far she had come. Didn't she also say it was also triggering for her to see it? And then eventually the picture was like destroyed by sunlight or something, which I thought was like metaphorically really pretty. I guess like when she first saw the photo maybe of herself, like when she was at her worst, she says, I need to remember who I had been, the lengths I'd gone for self-improvement, the sacrifices I made to fix myself, how good I once had been. I looked at the picture as time passed, feeling sadness, longing, jealousy, guilt, confusion, grief, wonder. The me in that photo was slipping further and further away. The picture got knocked and crumpled over time. Eventually, the sunlight destroyed it. That's like the very end of the chapter. So I guess like at first, she was like, oh, I found that picture. Like, this is what I accomplished and I can do this again. But she mentions earlier, like, when you gaze back at your skinny, skinny pictures, wondering what happened, was that really you? I mean, I think because, like, there's been so much time apart from, like, that photo was taken to her in that current state. And it's like, you know, you've done all these things since then. You know, that person who was, like, that was you back then is not you today. And she's just kind of growing up, basically, it seems like. You know, she's just kind of moving forward growing up, growing past the, calling the peaceful pastures the farm. Because, again, I've noticed, at least, after she leaves the farm, she's not calling it the farm anymore. So she's leaving that behind. I think she mentions that, like, the the friends that she has, she doesn't really talk to them anymore, except maybe, like, she talks to, like, one person now. She talks to one, and they're still, like, good friends to this day. Which I thought was actually, like, really sweet. That's sweet. I feel in a way, if you can connect with somebody in a, in a situation like that, and I know for I know somebody who still talks to people today from being in a facility like that. They're not like super close friends, but they still talk to each other because that's how they connected. They bonded over that, and that's something that they share together. I thought that was really sweet. Yeah, it's important when you're in those situations to make connections to help you survive and then when you leave you end up ditching most of them because especially when you leave yeah most of them end up being toxic but the ones that stick around are ones that went through that shared trauma with you and end up being hopefully good people down the road one last thing that i wanted to talk about with you before we close this out was she talks about how her parents and natasha did a really good job supporting her And with Natasha, she points out that Natasha never pushed Ivana to do something that she didn't want to do. And that therapy, I think her motto is like blank isn't linear, but she made a point to say therapy isn't linear. But that Natasha basically held her hand and kept her on the straight and narrow going down the path, even if she was wobbly. And how there was never a big aha moment or... 
you know, a session where she's like, I'm going to be done with anorexia. How it's like an, an overtime and a gradual and not even a conscious decision. I think that's really, I mean, as both of us go through therapy and I'm sure several of our listeners go to therapy, I think that's really important to remember that your mental health journey is not like a one size fits all. There's not like a... It's not. There's not like a, oh, here's your solution. Okay, bye. On with your life. It's... There's no, like, definite answer, you know, that you can read. And, I mean, books are there as guides, I feel like. I don't think you can find your answer in a book or in a guide. Or, what am I saying, guide? I don't think you can find your answer, like... In a self-help book. Yeah, those are just more guides to kind of help you figure out, like, okay, where do I need to be? What do I need to do? How do I keep myself on the right path? Natasha said, like, she didn't really want to force her to do something it was she she was just more there to guide her guide her on the journey and i think that's what really good therapists end up doing is they're they're like your um like your bumpers like when you're bowling as a little kid and you have the bumpers up in the gutters to make sure your balls at least going the right way even if it's going side to side it'll it'll get there it'll get there i'll just take a little bit yeah yeah and that's that's okay progress isn't linear Oh, one last, last, last thing I wanted to point out <laughs> is she talks about how at the very end, she talks about how her yeah. cat was a source of therapy for her. And I wanted to take a moment. When I was in grad school, oh. I got Vivi, my orange cat, about six months, no, eight months after I moved to Milwaukee. And I was so happy to have I lived by myself and I was happy to have like an animal to get back to in my apartment. And he made so many really difficult times, really rough times in grad school because David was still in Georgia. My family was still in Georgia and I was dealing with like unprecedented levels of stress and anxiety. At that point in my life, it was almost crippling. And he's such a beautiful boy. (laughs) I don't know if I would have made it through grad school without him, honestly. It's, it's just like amazing like, the comfort that you can draw from animals. Vivi just seems like a very comforting animal. Like, just being at your house, like, he's, his presence, he's always around, but it's, like, a presence where he's kind of, like, sitting next to you, and he's like, I will be your friend, and I will be right here supporting you, where Bartok is like, I want to play with you. I want to climb on your lap. (laughs) I will destroy everything you love. (laughs) What's this water bottle here? Can I knock it down? (laughs) <laughs> but Vivi is just like, I think in a way he's like the perfect therapy pet because he just seems very just majestic, I want to say. He really, he's really regal. Yes, that's the word. Like very regal, very just like put together. Like, you know the movie Homeward Bound? Yes. He's the golden retriever. What's the golden retriever's name? <sighs> He's like the leader of the bunch. He's like, you know, the wise, like the wise words. But yeah, I forgot the name, but he's the golden retriever. Shadow. <laughs> Shadow. Is that his? Oh, yeah. Oh, now I just want to watch Homeward Bound. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you feel the same way about Lacey. Like, like Lacey oh. has like made your house like feel more like a home. Oh, even when we were not friends the first year we lived together. Well, even, and I, I say not friends, like, I'm in a joking way. Like, 
we have bonded semi-joking so, way semi-joking yeah we were not as close as we are now but I mean there are days even today where I just have a long and hard day and I come home and I just see this sweet little cat staring at me and sometimes she'll just come up and purr and she can sense when I'm having a bad day and it just makes me feel warm inside it's amazing. I feel the same way about, like, Figaro and Bartok and Valkyrie. And... Yeah. I felt that way a lot with Jack in undergrad and even when I came back home and visited. He he always picked up, like, if I was having a bad day, it was just like he immediately was, like, there. Like, he sensed it. He knew it. He's such a good dog. And dogs are great. Mm-hmm. Valky mm-hmm. senses it and we go for a run together. We are undeserving of animals, basically. Whenever Dave and I have a bad day, we're always just like, I want a cat. <laughs> I know. <laughs> we are. We don't deserve animals. Yeah, well, it's nice to at least end this on a good note. Yeah. These were really beefy chapters. The next, the last three are really beefy too, but I agree with you. I really love her writing. I think she explains, I don't think everybody experiences this like quite exactly, but I think coming from a perspective of going through anorexia, I think... Some of the things that she talks about, the recovery process, and even just, like, the active process of dealing, like, going through the disorder, working through it, trying to, bat, like, fight it. it. It's just beautiful. I know it's, I know that sounds weird, but I just think it's coming from the heart, her, like, her heart. I don't think it's a really easy place to really talk about those kinds of things. Maybe she feels better and more confident to talk about it now, but I don't think it's easy in general to kind of, like, open up in this way and share this experience because it's triggering. It's triggering. It's it's not daisies and butterflies like what's on the cover, <laughs> so. And this isn't just telling, like, your closest friend what happened to you. This is publishing it in a book that hundreds of thousands of people see and read and the amount of strength that it takes to get so public about your traumas. I just like admire her honesty like saying like this is not like you know she's real in what she says and I admire that. It's a beautiful beautiful book. I can't wait till next episode where we can talk about the finality and really our whole thoughts about it in depth. Oh the finale got me. I like oh it really got me. This is an amazing book. If anyone who's been listening to us, I know on a lot of our episodes, we have a tendency to, and I feel like to some degree, we're moving away from basically giving a play-by-play of the book, but y'all got to pick this up and read it. Yeah, I would say if you can't afford to buy a book, which it's totally fine, go get a library card look into a local library program and see if you can get this checked out. If you can get this ordered at your library, most library systems, you can do like interlibrary loan orders or something of that sort where they can get books transferred to your library and you can pick it up. That's the magic of the public library system. You pay taxes for that. So I listen to audiobooks with my library card. It's really cool. It's really great. I love it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Well, we already plugged our Patreon, which if you missed that, go listen to the front of our episode again. And if... Look down at the show notes. <laughs> look down. Look. Scroll down. Pick up your phone. Scroll down. Scroll down right now. Um, if you want to find us on social media, you can 
find the podcast at Fiddle and Pipe. On Instagram, you can find Catherine at Cat Lunch Flute. You can find myself at BM Ross Music. And we have a Facebook page, right, as well? Yeah, we have a Facebook page, Fiddle and Pipe Forum. Go on there, check it out. If you are more of a Facebook person, we basically just announce some of the stuff that we do on Instagram. Trying to do more stuff on there, trying to find more ideas. But maybe share what you think about this book so far if you're following along on the podcast um, or if you're reading this book with us. Let us know. Uh, Share in the comments. DM us. Something. Yeah, we would love, love audience input. Uh, speaking of audience input, uh, we would love it if you could rate and review us on, I believe it's Spotify and Apple Podcasts, as well as recommending us to, uh, I don't know, your dog, your trash sanitation workers, your therapist, your enemies, anyone who you think will listen to us, your barista. Hey, Catherine, have you heard of Fiddle and Pipe? (laughs) What was that? It's a white. It's a podcast <laughs> with these two chicks who think they're funny, oh, and they're they... really not. Oh yeah, yeah. Especially that redhead one. No, she ain't funny. She's <laughs> kind of a brat. Oh, thanks. Ow. <laughs> <laughs> that hurt. Let's see. I'm so used to plugging in our Patreon page. Now I love you. I think that's pretty much it. Yeah, next week we're covering the last section of the episode of Butterfly Hunting, and then we'll be off off to the races. To whatever we got coming up for you guys soon, and we're not announcing that. We will soon. No. Yes. Alright. Alright. Well, on that note. Peace out. Bye. 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 Bye.